0: the ATV News Center at every city and town in the Maritimes. This is the ATV Evening News, Live at 5.
1: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Live at 5 for Monday, January 8th. I'm Nancy Regan.
0: And I'm Paul Menye. Here's a look at some of the stories our ATV reporters are working on for tonight's show. Nancy Regan is best known for her 15-year hosting stint on highly rated ATV-CTV Atlantic Supper Hour Lead-In Live at Five, a job she literally fell into after university. Growing up in the spotlight as the daughter of Nova Scotia Premier Gerald Regan, she found herself addicted to approval, which compounded a lifelong struggle with perfectionism. Regan is the author of new book from showing off to showing up that she describes as a memoir with a side of self-help. Now a podcaster, actress and presentation coach, Regan joins us on this episode of Broadcast Dialogue the podcast to talk about emerging from years of masking anxiety and imposter syndrome to walk the path of self-discovery and authenticity.
1: Hi there. My name is Nancy Regan, and I was a long-time TV broadcaster on the east coast of Canada. I got into the business in what would certainly be considered an unconventional way. Now, a little less so back in 1988, which is when I graduated from Saint Francis Xavier University. When I started at Saint FX, I planned to be an English teacher. And I was excited about that. Uh, But the summer before my last year, I had the opportunity to emcee a fashion show. And as it turned out, it was for the Multicultural Association of Nova Scotia. And because they were invited to be on CBC Information Morning Radio on their birthday show, they asked me to come on and, and do the commentating. And the reason we were all invited on was because the birthday birthday show was televised. So obviously it was a radio show, but on that particular day, it was televised. So I sat with the well-known hosts, in particular Don Tremaine, who was a beloved host here on the East Coast, and I got the bug. I guess uh, I got a lot of comments and feedback afterwards. I was 21 at the time. And as I talk about in my book, which we'll get into later, I was really in a stage of my life where I was addicted to approval. And that meant a lot that people were saying, hey, you're special. There's something special about you. So it was like a a light that I followed. In the spring of my final year at Saint of X, found myself uh, with the opportunity to go see the news director at what was then ATV, now CTV Atlantic, and that was Dick Pratt. And ATV at the time was the biggest audience east of Montreal, and we had a, a huge audience actually. In later years, when I would go do movie junkets in the States and other reporters would say, oh, what kind of share do you have? I would say, oh, we have a 50 share. And they'd look at me like with scorn, you mean 15. And I'd say, no, no, 50. Because at 5 o'clock, 50% of the televisions turned on in the Maritimes were watching live at 5. Anyway, off I went to have a chat with Dick Pratt to get advice about whether to go into journalism school or broadcasting school or maybe to break into a small radio market and I sat down with him in his office wearing my mask of confidence which was really a great uh, feat of acting on my part and I had been doing that for a long time. I had learned how to act confident and show the world that I had it all together when inside I felt very differently. Uh, But I guess I fooled Dick (laughs) because he ended up saying, well, kid, why don't we give you an audition and see what kind of potential you have? I remember being very calm and cool on the outside, but stammering on the inside. And I did what any any self-respecting 22-year-old would do. I lied through my teeth and said, oh my gosh, that's so generous. Uh, I would love to do that, which wasn't entirely true. I was terrified. Then I said, unfortunately, I have another commitment now I can't break. Is there a possibility I could come back, you know, maybe next week or anytime, you name the time? He, fortunately for me, said, sure. He said, yeah, come back next week. So off I went back to St. of X, and my then-boyfriend and I uh, spent the next week rewriting copy. He'd find stories and say, here, okay, rewrite this. He used his little tape recorder to, to tape me, and we really, as a team, got me ready for this. I've often thought in my life that I'm not particularly ambitious. I've been really fortunate to have an amazing career And it all feels like it was somewhat lucky. But you know what? So many women in particular say that. I know so many successful women who say, oh no, I just got lucky. Well, I really do feel like I just got lucky. Anyway, after a week, I went back to ATV and met with a fellow named Harris Sullivan, who is kind of a legend, certainly on the East Coast. And Harris was the executive producer, but he was also someone who was known, as I now realize, for spotting potential and developing it. And that was kind of his superpower. And he was a a terrific, interesting character, true character. And he became my champion. And the next thing I knew, he sat me down in his office. And uh, many people in broadcasting listening to this, I'm sure, can remember scenes like this Uh, Harris had all of these tapes from students across the country who were looking for summer jobs. And he said, look, I've got all these people who want these summer reporter jobs. And as he motioned the tapes, they were three quarter inch tapes. So they were literally towers in his office representing uh, young people who had already gotten some experience and some education of course, I didn't have any of that. And he said, I think you've got tons of potential, Nancy, but I can't justify hiring you as a summer reporter. But if you'd like to come in and just work here for free for a while, I will train you and we'll see where it goes. I would describe myself then as having had that dichotomy of high confidence and low self-esteem. So I was an actor. I knew I could do that. I had I had uh, really taken to acting, particularly at university. And I was a much better actor than anyone ever knew, as it turned out, because for the next 15 years, I ended up uh, acting the role of someone who was really confident and competent on television. Because what happened was, within a month of him taking me on as an intern, as we'd call it now, I was given a summer reporter job, and they threw me on the air. Later that summer, a new television station opened up on the East Coast called MITV. And of course, a private station that was Irving-owned, and it eventually would become global. But at the time, what that meant to me was that a lot of people, I want to say maybe 25 people, bled from ATV over to MITV. Um, They saw greener pastures and decided to leave the sure thing that ATV was and go on to this new venture. And that meant that a lot of positions opened up. And I was there at the right place at the right time. And Harris Sullivan came back to me. And I, I have to say, this is one of those moments in life that I can see every detail so clearly. And So often, I can't remember anything. My memory these days at 56 is pretty shady sometimes. But I remember everything about this scene because Harris said, so Nancy, I want you to audition for the co-host position on Live at Five. (laughs) And I looked at him. I'm sure my jaw literally dropped. And I said, are you crazy? And he guffawed. He laughed and he said, okay, kid, that's probably not what your reaction should be. That's not the best professional reaction to this, and I said, "No, really, you know." Here I was, 22, and with no experience except for probably about six weeks on air as a summer reporter. At that point, again, live at five was a huge show. It was the news magazine package that was meant to swing viewers between Oprah between four and five and our six o'clock hard news package between six and six thirty. I was completely ill-equipped for that. But Harris, even though he had people auditioning and sending in applications from across the country looking for this uh, sought-after job, he saw something in me that he thought would be right for the position. And, uh, you know, Live at Five is a very local feel, a folksy kind of approach, it's very much just talking to the viewers one on one and it's very maritime oriented and I was a Nova Scotia girl, that's for sure anyway um fast forward, I actually got the damn job <laughs> and and there I was, standing next to Steve Murphy every night at five o'clock. And Steve, at the time, was already a seasoned professional, so it's no surprise that I had imposter syndrome, because let's be serious, I was an imposter. I really didn't know what I was doing, but I managed to, when they say sink or swim, I swam like hell. I stayed on the air, and I got better. I learned from all the people around me, uh, people like Dave Wright, who came back from Boston, uh, to take the six o'clock job. And then eventually Dave left, which was a sad day for us all because he was a ray of sunshine in the newsroom. He is, he's the one who had actually originated Live at Five, the idea of walking and talking television and then took it to Boston. And Steve Murphy moved into Dave's job at that point. And I then co-hosted with Paul Menier, who had been our sports guy. And we had tons of fun for years, and and it it was an amazing career. And I was fortunate that I was able to hide from the viewers, and I think most of my coworkers and my employer, just how nervous I was, because I was so terrified of making mistakes on television that that became my primary focus. I tell the story in my book of uh, sitting down for movie junkets, uh, because they in particular would throw me into a bit of a spiral. They tended to make me nervous, but I never showed it Uh, until Mel Gibson, when I was interviewing him for Braveheart, for which he was the producer, director, and star. And this is when he was at the top of his game. And he asked me, how are you doing, as I was sitting down, and something I don't know. Something made me tell the truth that day. And I said, uh, actually, I'm a little nervous. That was totally uncharacteristic for me. And he said, what? You're nervous You're talking to me? And he said, watch this. And he looked at me and he put his finger in his mouth and stuck his other hand in his ear and made the craziest faces and and uh, crossed his eyes. And, and then he said, there, do you feel better? And I really did. And what he did was he reminded me that we're just humans. And I'd have to say that's my greatest learning from having met some very famous people and interviewed them. You know, the list goes from Madonna to Harrison Ford, Christopher Plummer, who I was fortunate enough to become friends with, Dennis Quaid to... David Spade and Chris Farley back in the day, Rodney Dangerfield, it goes on and on and on. Anyway, the biggest star that I interviewed, I'd have to say, and the most important one to me was six months after that experience with Mel Gibson. And I feel like he prepared me for her because I sat down to interview Oprah on her set in Chicago. When we go about our lives focused on our performance and how we are being seen by others and their expectations and judgments, our life is very different than when we go through life focusing on our contribution. What are we giving? What are we giving back? And I've always felt like I have been given a lot. So from those to whom much is given, much is expected. And I think, you know, all of us, no matter what our circumstances are, can look at ways in which we have been given a lot, whether it's financially or health-wise or intellectual capabilities, you name it. And I changed my thinking in terms of my fear of making mistakes and being judged and really started to move toward being focused on what I was contributing to the world. And that helped me. It also started me on a greater path toward authenticity. And at some point that meant that I had to leave my job because after 15 years, I realized that although it was considered a very highly successful job and I had great profile and I was making terrific money, particularly considering I had negotiated myself into a deal where I was just working three hours a day um, because my kids were young and that was important to me. I walked away from that job and that was a challenge to my sense of self and confidence because for a person who was always so worried about what other people would think, uh, that was hard. Most people thought I was nuts. And I remember one person calling me, this fellow who's a friend of mine called and on the day that it was announced and I picked up the phone in the newsroom and he said, oh my gosh, you're pulling a Seinfeld. (laughs) I said, what do you mean? He said, you're leaving when you're at the top. And I thought that was the nicest call. It felt like a a big warm hug, actually, because he understood why someone might do that. And hey, it doesn't hurt to be compared to Seinfeld either. I'll take a comparison to Jerry any any day of the week. But um, I ended up leaving because I felt like I was a mercenary by that time in my TV career. And I really needed to move toward uh, some greater authenticity in my life and see what else I could do. And now the broadcasting I'm doing is through a podcast. I I started a, a podcast of my own a few years ago called The Soul Booth. And it's been on hiatus while I wrote my book, but uh, it will be back. And I also am delighted to say I, I host another one called The Canadian Love Map, And it's produced by a company in Halifax called Pod Starter. And when they approached me, I thought, oh, I don't know, love stories. It could be schmaltzy. And as it turned out, it's really been anything but. We tell all kinds of love stories from across the country. And we have one sponsor, Charm Diamond Centers, which is the the largest family-owned a jewelry store in the country. So there's a family connection. There is uh, a real love connection. And we have told some beautiful moving stories, only a few of them really about romances to tell you the truth. And that is something that's lighting me up these days. But when I look back at my career in TV, I realized that although they were shining a spotlight on me, literally, I didn't feel my own light. And that big spotlight could never really light me up. It would for the moment, but it was not sustainable. And it wasn't until I went on my own path of personal exploration that I discovered that I had a light within me. And I needed to, um, as I think of it, turn up my dimmer switch
0: and really feel my own light again.
1: And that's the
0: journey that I've been on. Let's talk about the title of your book, Showing Off to Showing Up. I understand that the concept for this evolved as you were writing because this was supposed to be a book about being a better public speaker. (laughs) Yes, that's what I pitched. That was the book it was supposed to be, Connie.
1: (laughs) I pitched that book to Nimbus in the summer of 2020, in the middle of the pandemic. I had time to actually sit still. I had been thinking about writing a book for quite a while. But what I pitched was a business book, basically. Uh, I was working with clients on presentation training. And I will admit that the book was going to be subversively soulful, because I believe that the fear of public speaking is really the fear of public being. And if you dig beneath that, it's the fear of being seen. And again, if you keep on digging, if you dig down beneath that, it's really the fear of being seen as inadequate. And of course, the truth is most of us have this deep-seated fear that we really are inadequate and we don't want anyone to know that. And so what I have found working with clients, which is uh, something I love doing, is that I can give you tips and tricks to help your delivery and, you know, help you structure content and so on, to make you a better speaker, but nothing will really make you comfortable on stage until you connect to your own light, and you have to like yourself in order to be comfortable on stage. And for most of us, and maybe I should just speak for myself. For me, I couldn't like myself until I figured out what it was I didn't like about myself. So the whole the whole uh, idea of that very common piece of um, advice, just be yourself, uh, that that to me was ludicrous because I think that it's one of the hardest things is to just be ourselves until we feel our own light. And then we're not threatened by the light of others. We can celebrate and witness other people's light because we don't feel our own void or deficit. Um, so anyway, I pitched that book about the fear of public speaking. They saw the kind of writing I was doing and the publisher came back to me and said, "We think you should drop the fear of public speaking from the title. We think there's a memoir here." And I immediately went into fear and said, "No, no, no, no! Uh, you know, I'm not a psychologist. How can I just write about fear? That's ridiculous." And eventually, they coaxed me through it. And what I what I ended up with is uh, what I call a memoir with a side of self help, and it is not from a teacher's point of view. I think of it as, uh, I think if you read my book, you'll find that I'm much more of a seeker in voice than I am a teacher. And I want you to come along on this path with me. And um, what I'm discovering is this book is some kind of magic mirror. (laughs) This is the way I can put it, that when people come to the book they expect it to be a window into my life. And it ends up being a mirror in which they see themselves. That may sound kind of corny, but that's the feedback I'm getting. And it's, it's shocking me, all the different demographics of people who see
0: themselves
1: in this story. You know, I think it's a human experience.
0: I did read the book. And it's probably the first book I've ever read where the author started by giving the reader permission to hate the book (laughs) that's a strange first line isn't it you
1: may hate this book yes because as I say that's permission and possibility as you know I love to play with words that comes through in my book for sure but it was the possibility of people's disdain that gave the book wings because I had been an approval junkie for so long. And it was frankly terrifying to step out into the world in this kind of vulnerability uh, after living a pretty private life. Because even when I was on TV, I was Private within myself, I was. I had my mask glued on pretty well, so that I, they didn't see what I didn't want them to see. And I kind of lay it all out in the book, and people are shocked by that, I think, but in the best possible way. You know, the the messages I'm getting are just taking my breath away. And I have I've said this, and I it might sound disingenuous, but I, I can't tell you how much I mean it the book within two weeks of its release landed on the national bestseller list in the star and the globe. And it was there for three weeks. It'll be back. Um, But much more meaningful than that. I found it was so heart filling, soul filling to hear from individual people who were saying, Oh my gosh, you're telling my story. I've heard from people who I consider to be very, confident, dynamic, powerful, oh my gosh, I've felt like this since junior high, and I've never told anyone, and I've always felt alone until your book, and that, I mean, that, you know, takes my breath away, and so that's, to me, that's a much greater reward for being willing to step out into the world with this much vulnerability than commercial success, frankly. I mean, let's let's be honest, you don't make a lot of money from a book. In fact, you, you might not make any, really. That's not why you write a book. And the reason I wrote this one was so that I would help other people to see we're all in this together. At first, when I started writing, I was thinking I had all those typical voices that authors have. Who am I to say this? Who am I? Who, why would anyone want to read something by me and all that? But then I realized, no, you know, I've led a privileged life. And I still felt like this. So imagine people who have led a life uh, where they have been othered you know, by society, have been treated as less than. Imagine how easily they could end up with these feelings of uh, inadequacy. And I think there is a reason for me to write it. And I've really been rewarded richly for that. By the feedback that I've gotten,
0: you really delve into your lifelong struggle with perfectionism. Was that magnified by being the daughter of the premier during your formative years?
1: Hell yeah, (laughs) that's 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 my answer. (laughs) No, I'll tell you that um, growing up as a child in politics is uh, an experience that you know not a huge number of people have, and. Looking from the outside, you might not understand what a petri dish it is for perfectionism and for self-doubt and all sorts of other things. Because politics, when you're a child, politics teaches you that you have to be liked. And if if a parent makes their living by being a politician, you learn that your whole livelihood, your family's livelihood relies on your family, in particular the candidate, being liked. And you also uh, become very sensitive to comments that make you very aware that approval is not there. I remember being an eight-year-old kid and answering the phone at my parents' home. And in those days, you know, it was landlines, that was it and our phone number was in the phone book and i would uh, be on the other end of late night tirades by drunken disgruntled voters and they wouldn't care that uh, i was a, a child and i heard some pretty horrible things at times and i you know i had other experiences in politics that taught me that being liked was really important and so that led me to the kind of perfectionism that I landed in and also you know there there are other stories I talk about my uh, piano teacher when I was in my elementary years it was not really about the joy of music it was about every bit of feedback was aimed at telling me what I was doing wrong and sometimes you know I think about our education system partly because I'm someone who lives with ADHD and I Didn't know that as a kid. And it is, by the way, very common. While boys often display ADHD in terms of outward behavior, girls often internalize their issues with ADHD and it leads them to feel inadequate and quietly inadequate. And that's what happened to me. Our whole education system is built on telling children how far short they're falling of perfect. Like we measure everybody against 100% and you're always being told here's how far short you're falling.
0: And I'm I'm not sure that's very healthy. You really give us a great glimpse into your internal reality both from a career perspective but also, you know, other events in your life. And you gave the manifestation of your anxiety a name. Do you want to talk about Gus? and and was that just for the purposes of the book or did you always refer to your constant companion as Gus <laughs> no i wish i if i had i would have
1: had him tamed sooner <laughs> it was actually several years ago we brought uh we brought the author elizabeth gilbert to halifax for an event, a couple of friends and I, they were event producers, and I was working with them, and I interviewed her first in New York for my podcast, The Soul Booth, and it's actually on my website, if anyone's interested, uh, nancyregan.ca. Elizabeth Gilbert had quite an impact on me, actually, and I remember years ago reading Eat, Pray, Love, and it's interesting, that's such a polarizing book, you know, you have to, you have to accept that it really landed for millions of women particularly women around the world because it sold millions of copies and of course turned into a movie with julia roberts um, and yet a lot of people will be derogatory about that book and say it was navel gazing and i i have to laugh at that because that's what memoir is it's it's there's even memoir is the name a memoir. It's about me. It's about, it's about my journey. Um, in that case, Elizabeth Gilbert's journey. And I remember her scene in that book where she talked about her pending divorce and being a complete mess on the bathroom floor, like feeling her face on the cold tiles and just being uh, in a complete meltdown. And I remember being shocked that anyone could be that honest about their dark side. And so that definitely laid groundwork for me for this book. Little did I know it then. Um, But then when I interviewed Liz, she also uh, said a few things that landed for me in a really big way. Uh, One of the things was the way in which she talked about paradox. That led me to a greater... Ability to accept myself, actually. And I'll tell you briefly that uh, she was talking about the death of her partner, Rhea Elias. And she said, You know, was I, when Rhea was dying of cancer, she said, Was I an incredible, loving, compassionate, generous caregiver, or was I a total narcissist caught in my own shit? And then she answered her own question and she said, Yes. And she said, That's my reaction to most things, yes. Uh, yes to both. And uh, that conversation went further. And I talk about it in the book as well. And it uh, it really, it really just had an impact on me in terms of the way in which I was judging myself. And it made me move toward a much greater sense of self-acceptance. And then that helped me move from self-loathing to self-liking and, you know, into self-love. Uh, self-love is a term that I I could never stand, like it just made my skin crawl. But I think that's because when you are in self-loathing, it, it does seem impossible and it just it creeps you out. When Liz was actually in Halifax and speaking from the stage she started by uh, saying something to the audience and it was 97% women. So she said, I'm going to talk to the women in the room because it is mostly women. And she said, I've been traveling the world talking to women everywhere. And I realized there's this one thing that women need to do. And if only women around the world would do this one thing it would change the world it would change their lives it would change the world and it's just this one thing and as a good storyteller she was sort of stringing us along everybody's sitting on the edge of their seat and eventually she's like and you know what that one thing is and we're all going uh yeah we want to know um she said relax women need to relax And there was such a funny reaction in the room because everyone just kind of (gasps) broke into this guilty laughter. It was like that recognition of, oh my God, that's so true. And we went on to have an interactive conversation that showed how true that was for so many people in the room that we, you know, we are so uptight about so much, so worried about about the impression we're making on others and how others are judging us and how we're not being perfect and how we're not doing it all. And she just said, relax. And then she had us um, do something which I I thought was unrealistic at first, although I I love to free write. I wasn't sure this would work. And she said, I want you to write yourself a letter from your fear. And said to us, you know, your fear is really like a dumb oaf of a cousin who doesn't really understand the what he's trying to protect you from, but he's just so loyal he wants to protect you. And that's why she had us personify our fear and write a letter from our fear to us. And that led me later to think about my fear In a personified way, and I thought, okay, if it's the reptilian brain, then my personification is an alligator, and my gator that's constantly talking to me is named Gus, and his his name stands for "Give Up, Stupid." So that's that's where Gus came from for me.
0: I like that advice to relax. There are so many times in my twenties and thirties where I wish I would have been more relaxed about things as I reflect. And that kind of brings me to my next question, which is in reflecting in the book, a lot of the events of your life, you don't have to rely on your memory because they're actually on tape. Like the 1987 Miss Canada pageant, (laughs) you can go back and watch and reflect (laughs) on them. Yep. <laughs> do you want to do you want to talk about that process? You know, uh, on your road to authenticity, and and going back and looking at all of these things now that you're in your fifties.
1: Well, it's funny because uh, you mentioned the Miss Canada pageant, and I'd have to say that that was the real uh, road into my inauthenticity. I was a tomboy as a kid and, and it says a lot that, you know, I ended up in pageants because I was a basketball player. I, the reason I'm wearing Converse on the cover of my book and sitting the way I am is that it's about, it's about getting back to who I was before the world told me who and how to be. And that included what does it look like to be a girl or how do you have to act or sit to be a woman? And I bought into it all. And I really feel now like I uh, my journey is to get back to who I was when I was eight years old. Uh, so the lovely thing for me now is that I can look back, as you say, all those memories, a lot of them are on tape and I can look back at them and I can I can wish that I had been more present or I could have enjoyed them more at the time, but I don't really believe in regret. And in fact, I I say that really sincerely because everything in my life has led me to where I am right now. And I am finding it so fulfilling and gratifying to be connecting in such a fundamental way with other human beings right now over this book I've written. I couldn't have written this book if I hadn't gone through all that. And if it's being if it's been a key for them to unlock things about themselves, then you know, what a what a gift. When I talk about contribution, that's that's it. And it also gives me the the beautiful sense of deep connection with other human beings. I'm a, a huge fan of Brene Brown and the work she does in the world. And I think uh, her her concept that you can't have true connection, which is a fundamental human need, that you can't have it without allowing yourself to truly be seen. You can't be connected to other people in a real way without being authentic, and you can't be authentic without being vulnerable. That doesn't mean you know you you overshare with everyone you meet. But the more you can move into a space of showing up as who you really are, rather than showing off to the world what you think they want to see and what they'll give you gold stars for, I think the happier you are. And and one of the benefits for me, Connie, has been that being able now to look back at my younger self on camera, I have a very different experience because at the time I had this uh, glass half-empty view where all I could see was the things I was doing wrong. And now when I look back at that younger woman, I can see her light. I couldn't feel it then, but I can I can see it now. And I can see why people responded me, to me in the way they did. And uh, I feel fortunate to be able to go back and find a new relationship with that younger Nancy, because not everyone can do that in, in quite such a visceral way. You know, as you say, there's YouTube. Some of it is inescapable, but it's also a gift. And the one other thing I would say about that concept of light is that when you do feel your own light, it's it feels great to be able to celebrate others' lights. I spent so much of my life being jealous and envious and in scarcity, in, in a way, you know, in a sense of scarcity. And now I just feel such a, a beautiful
0: sense of abundance in
1: my experience of life right now.
0: Can we talk about separation from ego? Because I think this is something that specifically those in public facing roles like media. Get caught up in is tying their career up with their definition of self. What was that separation process like for you? You talk in the book about considering writing has been on your business cards after you walked away from Live at Five.
1: Has been. Yeah, I love that.
0: I I almost did it, except I thought, oh no,
1: people take me seriously and judge me for it. And I still wasn't ready to be judged that way then. I watched some. Examples of broadcasters who retired left and went into a, a spiral uh, because it was their self definition probably and i've seen that in a lot of different professional realms where people are so attached to their role as I talk about uh, there was a retreat one time where we were asked to write down some answers to the question, "Who are you and The automatic reaction of most people when they're asked, who are you, is to go to roles they play. And in particular, I'm a TV broadcaster. And if it's not professional, then I'm a mother, I'm a daughter, I'm a sister. Uh, All those things are roles. I guess one of the things for me about writing this book was figuring out who I really was beneath all of those roles, all of those uh, cloaks, as it were, or masks and um, figuring out who I was, like I said, before the world told me who to be. So I do think that so many of us have a perhaps unhealthy connection to what we do. And, you know, I have a, a dear friend, Anne Berube, who is the author of a new book called The Burnout Antidote. Talk about a well-timed book. And she, her first book was Be, Feel, Think, Do. And those are four things we all do, but her whole premise is that we do them in the wrong order. So we're always doing all the time, and that makes our thinking frenetic, and it means we hardly ever allow ourselves to feel or to ever just be. And her concept is if you start by committing to allowing yourself to be, whether that's meditation or what kind of stillness or presence practice you might have— that changes the way you feel, which impacts how you think. And that changes your action in the world. And so I think that once we can get out of the doing and really lean into the being, we can figure out who we are without all the doing, without all the extraneous. And for me, that's been a really rewarding journey.
0: Now that you've put this all out there, Are there colleagues coming forward and acknowledging their own struggles with anxiety and perfectionism?
1: That has been the most interesting part of it in some ways. Because, yeah, there have been people who I've worked with for 30 years. In fact, I'll I'll mention one because she already outed herself. Uh, Star Cunningham uh, was the host of Live at Five after I left. And she also was in the job for a long time. And then she went to the Mental Health Foundation of Nova Scotia as the CEO and president, which she is now. And when my book came out, uh, my podcast, The Canadian Love Map, uh, our sponsor had the idea that we should ask someone to interview me, take this host chair and interview me about my book. And I suggested Star. Because she knew, you know, what I had gone through, not from me, but in terms of her own lens. And I thought she'd find it interesting. She had already read the book and we had had conversation after she read the book that was a different level of dialogue than we'd ever had in our 30 years of knowing each other. And that's what my book is about. It's about opening up conversations. I joke that I'm wearing Converse on the cover because it's about starting conversations and it really did. With Star, it was amazing. She said, Nancy, you're telling my story in so many ways. And we would never have disclosed that to each other before this. And when she interviewed me for the Canadian Love Map, she came out and talked about her own struggles with mental health for the first time in, in to the greatest degree. That was so... Powerful. I was in awe of her choice to do that. It was really beautiful. And then, of course, you know, the domino effect was I heard from people after that who contacted me in tears saying how important that was to them, that it made them feel not alone. And I I just think, you know, if we can, as human beings, embrace each other rather than brace against each other, that's my idea uh, in terms of showing up instead of showing off.
0: There are probably broadcasters who are going to listen to this who are struggling with these exact things you're talking about, imposter syndrome in particular. What's your best advice to them? Call me. <laughs> I'm
1: I'm so open to having conversations with anyone who would like to chat, but also I think that my best advice is sort of offered in the book. I challenge you to take this same kind of uh, self-exploration path and see where it takes you, because it really only opens up a life of greater joy and happiness. And it's just been so liberating for me. You know, I was really nervous before the book came out, actually. I went into a period of anxiety before the release of the book, around when it went to print. And I, my heart was racing. I'm talking serious anxiety. Like I couldn't get my heart to stop racing. I then realized I started to feel, okay, when I really thought about it, I thought, okay, well, it's done now. And so maybe I need to lean into this little feeling of liberation that I see over here. And the more I thought about that, the more I realized this was profoundly liberating. And I'll tell you, that has been, that has become the absolute truth because i feel so free now from all of that it's like i guess it's like the emperor not pretending he has clothes anymore empress thank you um but it uh it really is liberating and it's changing my relationships it's changing my conversations everywhere i go it's changed my whole paradigm of preparation you know even for an, a conversation like this i would have in the past been sweating beforehand about, oh my gosh, I've got to uh, say the right thing, do the right thing. What should I be focusing on? Strategy, whatever. I, I, I want to make sure that it's okay for you. And all of that has kind of been swept away in favor of just showing up and saying, you know what, I'm just going to set the intention that I'm going to answer my questions from the heart. I'm going to hope that they're helpful maybe for you uh, for your podcast but also for people listening and that maybe it will unlock something for them or or make them feel better about something and I think that's uh, I think that's what we're here for. If I was going to put it in a really succinct way, I would say that for so long I was concerned about being loved and now I just want to be love. If you think that sounds corny, that is okay. <laughs> because it feels so good from my end that I, it doesn't matter to me. It's like that you may hate this book. That's about you. You can make any judgments you want. But um, I can tell you with clarity that I'm in a really happy place and enjoying this ride. What a, you know, what a great privilege it is to be able to do this. And I'm, I'm getting to share the book across the country and I hope beyond the country before long. And I'm just loving the conversations I'm having with people. So for me, it's all about
0: connection and contribution. I think that's a great note to end on. Thank you so much for joining us, Nancy. Hey, connection, contribution, and Connie. Thank you, Connie, so much. (laughs) Our thanks to Nancy Regan. Learn more about her work, her book, and her workshops at nancyregan.ca. For Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast, I'm Connie Teeson.